Colossians 1.9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. So, good morning, Taproot. We'll see if you're that awake when I get done. <laughs> yeah, you haven't heard the sound of my voice. You may want it at night when you when you have insomnia. It's, uh, <laughs> to answer your question, I started coming here in 1973, so you can do the math. That's 40 some years. So again, my name is Jim. You know, Tapper Church exists in the South End to make disciples. And we want to make disciples, we want to equip or train up disciples, and we want to send disciples out into the South End and beyond. That's, that's, that's our vision. And <clears throat> if you're here this morning and you're new, you're visiting, welcome. If you want to connect with us, find out a little more about us, there's a, uh, <clears throat> there's a connect card in the back of the chairs. You can fill that out. You can turn it in and out here at the desk. It looks like the front end of a bus. And um, <clears throat> if you do that, they actually have a gift for you. So a little inducement. <clears throat> so we're going through a sermon series on the book of Colossians that we call The Supremacy of Christ. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church for, at Colossians for, for two primary reasons. First was to encourage the church and challenge them to greater devotion to Jesus. The second was the Colossian church was facing some very difficult uh, cultural pressures, and they were being tempted to turn away uh, from Jesus. So this morning, you, you heard it right, we're going to look at just one verse, Colossians 1.9, and thanks, Will, for reading that. I know it took a long time, but you did good. <laughs> so now I'm going to give an overview about one of these encroaching philosophies that the early church saw, namely Gnosticism. Uh, and then I'm going to give a couple examples of some encroaching philosophies that we encounter in modern-day uh, modern uh, America as the church. And then I'm going to go through that passage, and hopefully covering those will kind of set the stage so we can understand a little clearer what, what Paul is trying to say in that passage and how that, how that connects to us today. Now, <clears throat> if you've been here the last couple of weeks, question Louise posed was, how can we remain faithful against cultural pressure and encroaching philosophies? Uh, now, we were all shaped by culture. Our beliefs, traditions, philosophy, um, we live, that's, the, that's the, the ocean we live in. Culture determines a lot of who we are. And in a pluralistic society like uh, Seattle, uh, some of that culture is Christian, some of it is not. Now, when we gather together as community, we naturally bring into our community uh, that culture with us. In some cases, we mix or we merge that uh, culture with uh, the gospel. This is, what, um, this is what Luis referred to as syncretism, or the merging or combining of different, different things. And it does affect how we understand the gospel. This is what was happening in the Church of Colossae, although 
Although this letter is ancient, 2,000 years old, its principles still apply to a believer living in the Puget Sound region today. Okay, so let me say this about, about culture. We should be careful how we view the culture around us. We are part and products of the Seattle culture. There are some things in our culture that, well, we can't embrace. There are some things in our culture that are beautiful, and we should embrace them. And there are some things in our culture that, well, just need to be redeemed. Now, regardless of what culture we encounter, we need to listen to and embrace the individual who brings that culture, who represents that culture, even if we cannot embrace what that individual believes. It's an important distinction. And this is why it's because all individuals are made in God's image, and that influences culture, even in, even in places where the gospel itself uh, is, has not yet been heard. And so um, we see its influences in cultures that are actually very different than ours. And like us, all, indiv all individuals need to be restored into that image. The church at Colossae was part of a larger Hellenistic or ancient Greek culture. And the church was encountering an encroaching philosophy that in this case, it was not to embrace. Now, Gnosticism was the name for what they, the, the, what they call it. And Gnosticism was a philosophical and a religious attempt to reconcile an evil, broken world with a good God. Classic problem of good and evil. You know, man, <clears throat> humans have wrestled with this problem for millennium. Now, what Gnosticism did is it split God into two, a good God and a bad God and then pinned all the blame for the bad in this world and the evil on the bad God. The result was is that if you were Gnostic, you could separate or you can compartmentalize the good in you as your thoughts or your knowledge, and the evil in you as that which your body desired, the materialistic world. Now, here it gets a little bit more. I mean, Gnosticism was, was, had many forms. But to break it down a little bit more, some Gnostics believed that, it, that you needed to control your body with rules. We call that legalism in, in Christianity. While others believed that your body, it could do anything it wanted to. It was evil, it was going to do it, fine, that's, that's no problem. Um, we call this licentiousness in the church. Now, a Gnostic could then enjoy any physical pleasure without guilt. Sounds kind of attractive, doesn't it? Or they could enjoy the pride of thinking that they could control themselves. Either way, either the evil in them did not matter, or it could be fixed and controlled by them. Either way, they, were, they would then align themselves with the deity that was good, and therefore would be saved without really needing someone to pay for that sin. Now, what we see here in, in, in happening in, in, in a lot of the churches at that time is that Gnostic belief was being mixed with Christian faith, particularly at Colossae. Now, Gnostic belief, when it got mixed, it taught that the Old Testament was about the bad God who created um, the material world 
and then gave us rules by which we could control it. Contrast that to the good God, which was, they used Jesus. He was the, um, uh, provided true enlightenment. Uh, Jesus was, in their view, spirit only because a good God could not inhabit an evil body. But, um, so anyway, you, you really no longer needed what we call the incarnation, where Christ came, God came as a man and, uh, and, and, and into this world. See, in the Christian view, Jesus was both man and God, fully man, fully God. Gnostics uh, divided those two. And what that meant, um, if sin was really God's responsibility in their mind, then you did not need a bodily death by Jesus to atone for, for us, for our sins, to pay for things. Now, Gnostic-influenced Christianity could easily fall into the legalistic or the licentious, like I mentioned earlier, which were um, tendencies within the church already. Now, Gnostic-influenced Christians could be good Christians just by following the ceremonial or dietary rules. Just, just come in once a week, follow these rituals, do these things, and you're good to go. Uh, no change of heart is required. You just, uh, just do these rules. Alternately, a Gnostic-influenced Christian could learn all about Jesus, all his head knowledge, but without the need to change their behavior. Now, in general, at the time, the early church confronted this heresy um, throughout the Roman world, and it took several centuries uh, before they finally, eventually put it to rest by doing a couple things. One was developing structures of authority, which was the uh, elders and bishops, and by what we call the biblical canon, or settling on what books actually made up this inspired, uh, what we call the inspired text, or the Bible today. So by agreeing on what were scriptures, what were the word of God, they also, um, <clears throat> they also started the task of exegeting or examining the scriptures and developing what we call systematic theology, was being able to say, okay, Christ really is both fully human and fully God. Don't understand it, but that's what we think the Bible, Bible reveals. And then the other thing they did is they, they said, Old Testament, New Testament, they're talking about the same God. It's not two different gods. It's not the angry, judgmental God in one part and the sweet, gentle God in the other part. They're one and the same. Now, that was good, but uh, I just have to say this. Sadly, there are some cultural pressures and philosophies that over the centuries have been syncretized with, with church beliefs and then become a part of the gospel that is presented to the world. Um, we have not always done the work that we see the Colossian church is asked to do in this letter. Now, in contrast to Gnosticism, the gospel tells us that we as humans are responsible for the sin and brokenness in the world. We did this. And we cannot fix what we have broken, at least on our own. 
the most damage that we did was to break our relationship with God himself because mankind first had the ability to talk with him and to see him in the garden with him, and we can't see God anymore. Uh, The gospel tells us that a good and loving God came to earth, lived as a man, demonstrated and taught about what a restored world would look like, was rejected by us, and was killed. The gospel tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. His spirit was reunited with his restored human body. This gives us hope that we will be resurrected someday in the same way. And finally, the gospel tells us that simply believing in Jesus will restore our relationships with him and will make us a part of his work that he's doing now to restore us as individuals, as a community, and to give that restoration to the broken world. So that's an example of what, what, what the Colossian church faced What are some examples of pressures that we face today as a church? Now, I give these not because the text is speaking directly to them, but these cultural pressures do affect how we read this letter being part of the 21st century. Now, one of the cultural pressures that we face as Westerners, as Americans, is what we call individualism. Now, this applies mostly to the white race, but... um, uh, you know, Hispanics generally, if they're first generation here, they're a lot more oriented around family and more of a collective, community type approach. But even there, they see with each successive generation, second and third generation, that, that individualistic influence coming from the larger culture is affecting them more and more as well, too. So it's, um, uh, it's something that we typically, a pressure we typically face. Now, here's a quote I found that kind of just, I thought, said what individualism... I'll just read it. (laughs) The most important entity in an individual or an individualistic culture is the individual person. The person's identity comes by distinguishing herself from the people around her. She is encouraged to avoid peer pressure and be an independent thinker. She will make her decisions regardless of what others think. She may even defy her parents with her choice of a college major or a career or a spouse. The highest goal and virtue in this sort of culture is being true to oneself. The supreme value is the sovereignty of the individual. Now, um, it's not all that bad. We do understand collective culture in, in, in this in the modern day, and we see it when it comes to team sports. You know, on a soccer team or a football team or a baseball team, every member has a specific role, and the team cannot win without every member doing their part together as a community. But that's, lots of times, that's more the exception than the rule. Now, our individualism also causes us to react negatively to certain biblical teachings, teachings on authority, teaching on submission, teaching on leadership, teaching on obedience, teaching on community responsibility, teaching on church structure and church order. But on the other hand, our individualism also helps us grasp biblical teachings on individual responsibility, personal prayer, personal ministry, standing against corrupt influences, personal piety, etc. 
Individualism is a cultural pressure that we need to embrace in some circumstances, resist in some circumstances, and redeem in some circumstances. Now, one example of, again, syncretism or mixing of beliefs today is when individualism is combined with a biblical principle that we call the priesthood of the believer. We find that principle in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and Revelation 1, 6. See, as believer priests, we don't need the church, a church intermediary, to speak to God on our behalf. We can do that directly. We also, every individual has the responsibility to serve and minister other, area, other members of the faith community. Ministry work is not just for ordained or professional ministers. What happens when this is mixed with individualism is that you sometimes get believers that claim, well, I've heard a word from God, and therefore they can reject various forms of legitimate church authority. Sometimes these individuals can even say that because they have heard from God, others should follow them. <clears throat> Although cultural pressure, another cultural pressure in our um, is our concept of, of knowledge itself. See, we live in a rather highly educated area of the country. We go to schools, we take training classes, seminars, etc., to gain more knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. However, what often happens in the wider culture is that we assign a person's place in the hierarchy of society, the level of society, based on how much knowledge they have acquired. This is a form of what we call classism, with geniuses and those with multiple PhDs at the top, all the way down to those with no education at the bottom, or the lowest class. Now, when this type of thinking about knowledge is, is mixed with the Christian faith, then what we see happen is the church is viewed as church leadership is viewed as a hierarchy. In other words, based on spiritual knowledge, based on your knowledge of the Bible, some see elders, for example, as the top tier with the most knowledge of the faith, then below the elders are the deacons, then below the deacons are the church staff, below the church staff are church members, and then below the, that is, well, the rest of us. And um, any, as you gain knowledge of the faith, you can move up the hierarchy. This view is not biblical. It's not. Jesus made this statement. He says, one is your teacher in heaven, and you are all brethren. Brothers and sisters. That is the biblical teaching. But too often we see even church leadership adapting this model because it comes from the culture around us and without thinking, we sort of just bring it in. Now, just, just to use elders, for example, they do have the responsibility of teaching with authority. That means an elder needs to study and gain biblical knowledge. But that knowledge is so that you can properly exegete or explain and interpret biblical text. 
This is needed for those times that elders must confront someone in the church who is teaching false doctrine. This, call it special knowledge, is not to be used to gain personal authority because the elder's authority is the scripture themselves. As an elder, you've got to be able to know where you can go to the passage of scripture that says and teach, this is what God says. That's our authority. Now, um, this knowledge can be acquired by any believer willing to humble themselves and do the work of study. It's not limited to an elite few. Now, I've only given two examples of cultural pressure uh, that have been mixed with Christian faith. There's, there's, there's plenty more. There's plenty more. Um, I selected these cultural pressures because they often can affect how we understand the text that we are studying today, for example. Now, we, we, we can see truths that connect with our cultural experience. That's fairly easy to do. But we can miss subtle things that would be more obvious to someone who is ancient or more from a communal culture, um, sometimes non-whites and Middle East cultures. They can see things, subtleties, things that we might not, not easily connect with. And I'll note these as we go through the passage. So, okay, so let's get into the text itself. First part, why does the text say, quote, we continue to pray, unquote. So as noted in earlier sermons, Paul and Timothy had become aware of the gospel process in Colossae um, and as reported by Epaphras. This was evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work in this city. The gospel was preached there. People responded in faith. They were grouped into a church. Now they needed to be discipled. The work of becoming disciples requires the Holy Spirit, biblical teaching, and and prayer. They were seeing it happen. And I'll bet you they were saying, okay, we need to get there. Uh, well, okay, let's send a letter first, but we need to get in there because God is at work. We need to pray. We need to engage with that, that culture because that's where the Holy Spirit is, is at work. A quote I, I, I really like from one of our former pastors was, Christ said he would build his church. You go and look around where that's happening, that is where Christ is at work. Now, prayer is needed daily. Uh, <clears throat> prayer is needed, needed daily that the hearts that were originally responding to the message of the gospel would continue to respond to the teachings of discipleship. So next thing, why does it say that you may be filled. What's he meaning here? Well, part of this is to counter the Gnostic thinking that spiritual knowledge is the privilege of the enlightened few, while the unenlightened, the rest, unenlightened, the rest of us, get just a portion of that knowledge. The text here says we are to be filled. As, kind of as you'd fill a gas tank in your car just before you're going to drive on a long trip. You know, you fill it up to that thing says full, right? 
It's an event, not a long, gradual process. Another thing to note in this phrase is the you. It's in the plural, meaning all of you. This prayer instruction were directed to the church as a collective. Everyone in the church was to be filled with this knowledge. This filling most likely happened when they met together. See, in the first century, many churches, um, many Christian believers were not literate. So they would gather together in a home, and someone would read the letter like this, and it was done out loud, and the community could all, could all sit there and listen to it, and there would be discussion, as opposed to the letter going to an individual and then going off by themselves and studying it. The sense was this letter was to go to a group. They were going to read it as a group and talk about it as a group and do what it says as a group. So next, what is the knowledge of his will? Now again, the tendency sometimes is to see this as what is God's will for me? Now that's a great question. As individuals, we want answers to specific questions like, well, where does God want me to work? Where does God want me to live? If you're single, does God want me to marry? And if so, who? Or, you know, you're, you're working a job and I have an opportunity for promotion at work. Should I take it? Things like that. These are all great questions. These are all questions that the Lord loves. And I believe he does answer them. But that's not the question that is being answered here in the text. See, the book of Colossians is giving God's will for the church as a collective. Again, the, the, the plural is emphasized. It answers the questions of how relationships are functioned between church members. It also answers individual questions like, what are the Christian virtues that I should pursue? And what are the, Christ- what are the vices that I should forsake? It is, it is practical knowledge meant to affect our behavior, not something just to remain up here in our minds. And you can see this if you just look at verse 10, because it says, what does it say? so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's standard language for you hear this, you obey it, it changes you. Your behavior looks different to others that might be watching. Now, except for some general principles, the Bible does not address a lot of the personal questions that we have. Some of the questions, like I mentioned, where am I going to work, you know, Should I move to Spokane? Okay, the word Spokane, I haven't found it. I haven't done an exhaustive search, but I'm willing to bet you won't find Spokane there. Now, I intend to show that there is a link between the will of God for the church as expressed in the Bible, what's written, and the will of God for an individual that is not spelled out in the Bible. And I'll do that a little bit later in the sermon. So this spiritual wisdom and understanding 
What does he mean by that? This is a set of instructions that can be understood pretty much by anyone. It's not a mystical secret knowledge uh, known only by a privileged few. A grade school student can understand the spiritual knowledge that Paul is referring to. And I think sometimes our kids actually do understand a little bit better. They haven't clouded it with other things. In fact, this, this body of knowledge is short enough that it can even be memorized. Now, we see examples of this, this, this spiritual wisdom and understanding in chapter 3 of Colossians, which we'll get into in a future sermon. We also see this in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, historically, the church has called this, quote, the teaching, or the didache has been referred to, or the household text, meaning this is how the household of God, the church, is to function. And it was a specific set of relational instructions. They were based on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, these teachings were used throughout the early church to instruct believers about personal piety, relationships with others, church culture, and church structure. As believers, see, we live in two worlds. We live, one is the world of Seattle, uh, Puget Sound, with all the cultures and beliefs that we encounter every day. That's one world. The other world is what we call the kingdom of God. This is where Christ rules. See, it is in the church that Christ's kingdom should be breaking into this world. It is in the church where we should see Jesus restoring humanity back to what it was designed to be. It is the church that is called to demonstrate and bring restoration to the world around us. This spiritual wisdom and understanding instructs the church as to how to live as part of the kingdom of God. See, the phrase that you may be filled with all wisdom and understanding is, again, like filling the gas tank of your car. Just as you're headed out of town on an all-day drive, you're going to central Oregon or central Idaho or way up into Canada. This filling is intended to give the church and, as individuals, all the instruction that we need to live together as a community of faith. It does not stop with head knowledge alone. It is practical, and it's meant to change our behavior. So how does this will of God for the church um, connect back to an individual's desire to know God's will for a specific area in their life? I'll use a personal story to illustrate this. As many of you know, um, my wife Janice died suddenly four years ago. <clears throat> We'd been married for 38 years, and we looked forward to, you know, 10, 15 years more, 15, 20 years more um, together. That was our hope. That hope vanished when she was gone. <clears throat> I found myself in shock and emotional pain that kept me up for nights. I laid in bed while my mind raced, 
wondering what my future would be. I desperately wanted something to ease that emotional pain. I needed hope. Now, I never lost my hope in the resurrection, just my hope in the, what the remainder of my life was going to be like between now and the day that I die. That hope was shattered. Now, <clears throat> in the dark of the night, one, one thought that promised hope, promised hope, was that perhaps I could remarry. However, at the same time, I also had a gut feeling that following that line of thought was completely inappropriate at that time, and still is. Perhaps it was my upbringing, or maybe watching my dad become a widower and my father-in-law become a widower twice um, that gave me that feeling. Now, I was able to put the question aside briefly enough to sleep, but a gut feeling or experience would not help Helped me for long. What I needed to know was God's will in the form of words that I could understand and I could articulate or speak. I needed an answer that filled my whole soul, not just something to try to tamp down my emotions. Well, within a few days, <clears throat> I met with the other Taproot elders, and one of them suggested that I get some advice from another pastor in the area here in the South End. And as he was saying this, I could see the other elders were all, yeah, yeah, that, that would be a really good idea. Um, this pastor, turns out, was a guy about my age who had lost his wife just 18 months earlier. I decided, I think I'm going to do what the elders suggest. So I met with the guy. We talked for at least two hours. I got a lot of good advice, got some books to read, got a couple of good warnings. And following that encounter, talking with some others, reading some of those books, I got to the point where I could articulate why I needed to ignore the question of remarriage, at least for a year and a half. I now knew God's will for this area of my life. Now, I still had the pain, and I do feel it to this day. <clears throat> but I had peace. If I have peace, I can manage pain. If I have peace, I can live with pain, or I can live with pleasure, either one, because that is what we call human flourishing. It's shalom. See, knowing God's will in a way I could articulate with words is important. And I use an example. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't respond with, well, I just don't feel that's right, or that's not how I was raised. Jesus says, it is written. It is written. God's will is on paper. He quoted God's written words from memory. He did this three times, and then Satan left. See, being able to articulate God's will in words is important because it confronts the devil and because others can learn from it. 
You know, millions of Christians over the last 20 centuries have learned how to confront lies and temptations because these words of Jesus were written. They could read them. You really can't do that with just a feeling. <clears throat> so how does this story connect to the will of God for the churches as we've studied? I am part of a church community that works as following God's will as revealed in the Bible. We're not perfect, but this is the direction that Tapper goes. Tapper believes and teaches the gospel. Tapper teaches the Bible as the final authority. Tapper follows what the Bible says about church structure. Tapper has elders that meet the qualifications listed in the New Testament. Tappert is a church that serves and prays for those who suffer. Many of you prayed for me, which I felt and I really appreciate. Tappert is a church that collaborates with other church in our local, churches in our local community to feed the hungry. That's why we had other people we could reach out to when I, when I went through this. Tappert is a place that teaches, we, we teach the Bible passages that say, I should, avoid, should obey my elders. And beyond that, I mean, it's not necessary, but it's great that we have it. I have elders that I know and trust, and they know me. In effect, Taproot's obedience to God's revealed will made it much easier for me to seek and discover God's will for me personally. Now, I'm very thankful for you all. Thank you. Had I been on my own or part of a community that did not follow God's revealed will, I don't believe I would have found the good advice or the peace when I needed it most. But there it was, just within days. <clears throat> so I have an appreciation for you all. And see, that's the thing about a collective, a community. I can't make the rest of you follow the Lord. But I'm sure glad to be here when you do. So I've been thinking about a way to apply this verse this week. An instruction I could give all of us. Now, this is what I came up with. You can take Colossians 1.9, that single verse, replace the two places where it says you with the word taproot. And pray that every day. Now, I would strongly suggest you don't try to multitask this with your existing activities. Dedicate a full 15 seconds, that's how long it takes, of your day when you are not doing anything else like driving or walking or washing dishes or chewing gum and all that sort of stuff. Find a quiet place, maybe with somebody else. Okay, get on your knees if they still bend. Um, fold your hands, close your eyes, and pray this verse out loud. Now, if you already pray daily in this way, just add 15 seconds onto that time and um, to existing prayer time. Now, this next Sunday, before you come to the gathering, 
you're free to ask the Lord if he wants you to limit that prayer to just one week. I would direct you back to what Paul said. We continue to pray for you. I don't know if he limited it. But anyway, whatever the Lord tells you on that, do what he says. So, Will, band, it's time you can come up now. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to collectively, again, worship in song as a church. Uh, during that time, if you've got kids in Taproot Kid, if you've got children in Taproot Kids, you can go get them, bring them in so they can participate in our group activity of singing in song. And we just continue to worship the Lord. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us so that we can understand better who you are. We pray you uh, just give us understanding as we meditate on what's been taught. And uh, just thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity to uh, be a part of this church. In Christ's name, amen.